several years ago, I was in Hawaii on Maui, and I, uh, we walked past a, one of the very fancy, expensive, I don't know how expensive it is, it looked expensive, resorts. And um, I couldn't resist, I got one of the posters, I have it here. It says, Aston Kaanapali Shores Resorts presents chocolate yoga. <laughs> so you can come look at the poster. And it says, um, anyway, it shows this attractive woman with her parrots. And it says, um, you know, as, as uh, my eyes, as I get older, my eyes go, I have to, in order to get it in focus without glasses, this has to keep going further and further out. But then I need a larger font, so it's a balancing act there. Chocolate yoga, an exercise concept where inner peace starts with the stomach. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> I got to get through this without cracking up. Is finding an, an enthusiastic audience upon, among, America, among America's fit and famished. The pr- <laughs> The practice combines, it actually sounds great. (laughs) The practice combines the natural high of stretching with the endorphin high of eating chocolate to facilitate relaxation, health, and happiness. (laughs) You know, I'm getting a feeling we're on the wrong retreat. (laughs) I mean, IMS is nice and all, but... A typical class begins with a sacramental offering of raw chocolate, homemade. <laughs> and, then, and then here's the mindfulness part. Participants are invited to start. I got, I'm cracking myself up now. Participants are invited to start nibbling, focusing on the sensations that unfold as the full expression of the chocolate works its way from the mouth to the body. (laughs) And it goes on and then it says, warning, eating raw chocolate and doing yoga may cause you to have the best day ever. (laughs) That's why. And then there's there's a reason why I'm on this chocolate theme and following up just one more thing on the chocolate theme. There's a kind of chocolate, called, some of you may know it, called uh, Dove chocolates. And they're each individually wrapped. I like the, the dark chocolates myself. And each wrapper has a little saying. So you open the chocolate, you eat it. And so I just want to read you a few of these, and you get kind of the, the, the sense that it's conveying kind of a, really an attitude towards life, uh, actually. So here's a few. Find your passion. You're allowed to do nothing. Decorate your life. Go to your special place. (laughs) Learn something from everyone you meet. Dare to love completely. I'll just leave a few. If they can do it, you know you can. You know what? You look good in red. (laughs) Do what feels right. And there's some more here. The 
I brought this because the, the, the felt the sense that's being conveyed by this chocolate yoga in that retreat and you get from these wrap, chocolate wrappers is that you're okay. Life's going to be okay. It's going to work out. Everything's going to be all right. Right? It's that kind of feeling. Life's good. So here we are. Um, and actually here, on, on one level, it's, it really is a wonder for us. I was kind of teasing about, you know, we're on the wrong retreat or something because it just sounds so wonderful. But um, it's a wonder why there's any suffering at all here when you actually think about it. Right? We put a lot of attention to set up the conditions to create as much support and a compassionate, loving space uh, and, and supporting conditions as possible. You can sit here in the hall in any way you want. You can lie down if you need to. You can set your own schedule. Right? We're encouraging you, if your body's tired, take care of yourselves. Right? Um, you don't have to make anything happen. All we're really doing is asking you to be mindful of whatever it is that is happening. And we see how difficult just that can be. Actually, it's not a wonder why we suffer. We know why we suffer. Our bodies ache. Emotional, psychological you know, challenges come up. Uh, we see how out of control our minds are and we don't have any distractions. Or we've much less distractions. Of course, there are plenty of distractions here, but it's, we've removed a lot of them so in order to enable us to come face to face just with ourselves. So on one level, it can feel, for some people, rather frightening to realize what it looks like just to be present with ourselves. Right? It can be discomforting, disconcerting. Maybe we don't like the food, or a few people have roommates, or just whatever. There's... I remember when, at Spirit Rock, when they first built the, uh, the residential facilities there, and some of you have probably been there, and it's quite beautiful and nice there. And Ajahn Amaro said, when they built it, he said, now people are going to uh, suffer worse. It, because it's so nice, they're not going to be able to blame their suffering on their surroundings and they're going to have to come to realize it's their own minds. So here we are. And for some of us, we're having an easy time. For many people, uh, it's quite challenging, and especially in uh, and those of you who are experienced know this very well, the first few days can be particularly challenging as we go through the settling in process. Sometimes the way I, uh, an image I have is uh, when you're flying on an airplane, uh, uh, you know, of course it can be bumpy once you're at cruising altitude, but oftentimes that tends to be smoother, but the going up tends to be bumpy and the coming down. And in a way, it's kind of like a, a, maybe a shift in vibrational levels, if you will. You know, we come in and we have to kind of settle in and it can be bumpy and then difficulties can come, but once we've settled in, uh, once we... Um, have cultivated some of the um, wholesome, beautiful, important 
qualities of the heart and mind to aid us and assist us, then when we come to meet, it's not that no difficulties will ever arise again, but when we come to meet them, um, it's, it's, it's a whole different thing, right? And the irony is, is that when we first come into retreat, when it can be the bumpiest and when we need the most resources, that's when they're actually cultivated the least. So it can be particularly difficult, so we need to know that. You know, think if there's been a time, maybe on this retreat or other retreats, when you've been in, say, a sitting period, and it's been particularly challenging or difficult, and you're, you know, you're either restless or sleepy, or your body hurts, or you can't concentrate, or you're hungry, or whatever it is, and you're just wondering, you know, when is that bell going to ring? And you're suffering, and then you hear, and the mind goes, ah, and relaxes. You haven't even moved. <laughs> you're suffering, this arises, and you're fine. It's actually that's a really if that happens to you and it probably happens to all of us at sometimes it's an important place to pay attention it's really shining a spotlight on how much of our suffering is created by our own minds I'm not going to go so far as to say I want I'm a, I am a little hesitant to say that all of our suffering is created by our own minds because you know if you're in pain I mean it is a, a suffering it's a certain level of suffering even if we have equanimity right but Let's just say, at the very least, a lot of our suffering is created in our minds. But of course, we're blaming it on, you know, the breather sitting next to you. But it's 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 not them, right? The liberation pointed to by the Buddha is often called a liberation through non-clinging. And what we mean by that, it is a freedom or a liberation, if you will, or a, play, a refuge. When we think of what's a refuge, most of us are looking for our refuge. What is a refuge? It's a place where you're okay. You know, it's not I, one of the reasons I brought up this chocolate, because it's a little humorous, but also it is kind of a certain kind of, you know, if really if, you're, if you happen to like Maui or whatever your version of that is, and maybe you like chocolate and yoga, and that probably actually would be pretty pleasant, right? I mean, it would. So we don't want to deny that there's, in, that there's a happiness, a well-being, uh, that there's benefits in, the co in conditioned experiences. But we don't, we want to understand the inherent limitations, right? That we want to not think they're going to do more for us than they can do. Because this is basic Dharma teachings, that even if you could set up your life to be ideal, perfect, which of course we can't do, but let's just say you could do that. Whatever that is for each of us, it would vary for each of us. It's not going to last. Right? So it might serve us well in the moment, but it's not going to ultimately solve our problem. And so what Dharma, one way to think about it is um, that rather than seeking our well-being, our happiness solely in circumstances, having to have certain experiences and definitely not having others, and we can all think of lots of experiences we'd like to, ha like to have, and it's pretty easy to think of plenty of things that definitely don't want that. Right? We're human beings. We all can relate to that. But if that's our only strategy for being okay, 
setting up the conditions just right. And you know, we're all trying whether uh, it's, we're conscious or unconscious of it, right? We're all trying, I mean, this is gonna sound silly, but everyone here is trying to get more of what they want and less of what you don't want in life, right? Anyone here trying to get more of what you don't want? <laughs> Anyone here trying to get less of what you want? No. No, we're, no. Are you going to stop doing that? I doubt it. We're human beings. You know, if you'd get single-celled organisms, bacteria, if they, whatever, you know, the ones that like certain nutrients, you put the nutrients, they're going to sort of move over towards it. Or the one, if they don't like light, they'll squiggle away. It's something built into being a living being. That, so we're not judging ourselves, but we're taking a look at this situation we all find ourselves in, which we call the human condition. And so the Buddha is saying, well, is there a way out? And one way to think of it is just a shift of perspective. Uh, that rather than being slaves to circumstance, at the mercy of, what do you say, I guess, what the vicissitudes of life, can we start to find our well-being in not the, so much the experience itself, but how are we relating to whatever it is that's going on? That's the key. That's the key. That's what's being pointed to by the Buddha. And so we call it a liberation through non-clinging. So that sounds good. And then, so if someone, if I say, okay, don't cling. Well, sometimes you can do it, but a lot of times you can't do it. You'll be able to do it in a given moment, and the right causes and conditions come together. We're just hooked right in again. Sometimes for, and I don't know why, there'll be this whatever's going on that, and you're able to be with it and be with it, and, and you're still resting equanimous and peaceful, and, and then something shifts, and the same thing, and it, we're caught in that time. So we, you know, we need some help. Right? That's why we're cultivating, we're practicing to cultivate these qualities, mindfulness, comp concentration, which I'm going to focus on tonight. Uh, it's a steadiness and undistractedness. A clear knowing, clear awareness, or we'll say clear comprehension. We need to have these qualities of mind so we can more clearly be aware when we all, a lot of times we don't notice that we're suffering. You know, this example I gave, I, th I find it to be a real not, uh, good one about, you know, you hear the bell and you're suffering. Uh, that may have happened to you a lot of times. You didn't actually notice, oh wow, look what just happened in my mind. Isn't that interesting? I'm sitting here and then a certain sound arrives and all of a sudden, and I think it's, it, I don't know what, but I have, you know, we're just in it. So we, we need to bring these qualities to bear and that's why we put a lot of emphasis on cultivating certain qualities because they serve us. They're in service of some, so we're cultivating what are called conditioned quali qualities, right? Concentration comes and goes. It's not the ultimate goal. But it's important. Mindfulness is a conditioned quality. Sometimes we're more mindful, than sometimes we're spaced out. Right? But the more we can cultivate it, uh, the more it will serve us. Those of you who are experienced practitioners, experienced on retreat, know very well what a dramatic shift it can be later on in, the, in a retreat 
in working with difficulties or meeting our experiences versus those early days when these qualities aren't strong. It's just, it's dramatic. It can be. And it's amazing what can often happen in just a few days. It's actually very inspiring how much can happen quickly, how malleable the mind can be, and how far we can come. So, and for those of you who are new and are waiting around wondering when you're going to get all this bliss you've been hearing about. <laughs> so we're, we're in a process, we're in an exploration together and, and um, we'll, we, don't wanna, we don't like to set up expectations here of telling you what's going to happen. So we'll just say, you know, just, you know, you've been here for two days and you, you haven't left. And uh, actually um, it's, it's quite... Um, uh, um, awesome, <laughs> in in the best sense of the world uh, word, awe-inspiring, to be able to hang out together and what we go through when we don't have these qualities develop and still be able to show up and sit here for forty-five minutes and walk and our knees ache and we can and to just keep coming back because we have some confidence or faith or maybe it's just a desperate hope that something good can come from this and something that says, you know, I, that sounds good to me. I do want to shift my relationship. I do want to live in a way where my heart is more open and loving and I'm less reactive and more responsive. Right? I'll sign up for that. That says a lot about you. You know, for all of you who are judging yourself because you think you're no good or you're this or that, you know, we often judge ourselves by how well or poorly we think we're doing it. By the way, you're the least qualified uh, to judge yourself. Because you're not objective, you're caught in it. You can't, you're not objective. I'm not caught in yours, so I will uh, be a little more objective. Don't go by how well or poorly you think you're doing it, it's by your intention. How good or bad you're doing it, that's just the conditioned patterns of your mind, that's what we're working on. You're here doing it, bumping up against. Uh, the difficult places. Right. That's what I mean when I say it's, it's awesome, it's beautiful, it's, it's uh, inspiring. And I hope you can connect with that place in yourself. Sometimes people, it's not so easy for them to connect with, with the good, the wholesome, the beautiful in themselves. One of the qualities and what I'm going to focus on for the rest of the night that we're cultivating, we've been talking about, is this, this, we've been using this word concentration. I'm going to define it a little more clearly and talk about it in a little more depth tonight. The word in Pali and in Sanskrit is samadhi. Uh, right samadhi, it's the eighth and final step of the eightfold path. It's important, it's a big deal um, uh, in Buddhist teachings. Some teachers really emphasize it and they say, you've, you've got to get, I'm going to come back to that phrase, you've got to get, because I think that's a setup for suffering. But um, you know, it's important and you got, not only that, you have to get these special states that we've mentioned a few times but have consciously left undefined uh, for now called jhana and you've got to get these mysterious exotic states called jhana. If you don't get that, forget it. That's one extreme. The other extreme, there's Dharma teachers, you'll see here, some will come through here, they're almost, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but so I'm just, but kind of anti-samadhi because they don't want you to get uh, caught in clinging and, and just it's just being mindful the best you can and really not think about samadhi, but, uh, right? The Buddha wasn't one of those people. He said, go for it. But um, 
Uh, in fact, um, let me um, just read a quote here. This is the Buddha. Um, sorry, I have too many quotes. He's talking about these deep states of concentration called John. He said it's, they're called the pleasure of renunciation, the pleasure of seclusion, the pleasure of peace, and the pleasure of enlightenment. I say of this kind of pleasure that it should be pursued, that it should be developed, that it should be cultivated, that it should not be feared. That's the Buddha. It's the Buddha. We should listen. I'm in the middle. You may be getting the sense that I... Uh, think samadhi is a big deal, and I do. People mistakenly think I wrote this book on just the title samadhi, you know, so they think I'm the samadhi guy, but it's not true. I don't think you've got to get anything, nothing. I don't want to make samadhi more important than it is. I don't want to diminish its importance either. It's kind of a middle way. So let me say a few things about it. First of all, I don't, I don't like the word concentration as a translation. We're stuck with it because everybody uses it. But I think it carries a lot of baggage and has such a range of connotations. The word samadhi actually means undistracted or undistractedness. So I'm going to continue to use the word concentration, undistractedness is a little clumsy and it's everybody says concentration, but I want you to know that when I'm saying concentration, I mean undistractedness. Um, there's a lot of disagreements among Dharma teachers, meditation teachers, about the place of concentration in meditation, how it relates to insight. There's no disagreement about meditation teachers about the importance of being undistracted. No Dharma teachers say, be distracted. <laughs> if we think about concentration, if we, if we think about it, just substitute the word for a moment, undistracted. Why wouldn't you take that as far as you can? Let's be as undistracted as we can. How does that interfere with insight meditation? It doesn't, right? If we know what we mean. We don't want to grasp after it, cling after it, but in a wholesome way, let's aim ourselves in a direction. Take what we get in the present moment and work with it, but aim towards a deepening undistractedness. Okay. So I have to get a little technical here for a few moments. Uh, undistracted, it's not that technical, but undistractedness, there's actually two ways that undistractedness can at least two main ways I know of that undistractedness can develop, and they're quite different. And it's important to know. Now, you don't have to remember any of this. It's fine. I notice there's several people here taking some notes. You're welcome to do that if you want to. But you're going to see it's actually conceptually simple. I mean, I'm not stopping those of you who are doing it, but for all of this talk, um, it's perfectly fine. Just let it roll through the mind, let it roll out, and what's needed will stick. Because when we bring it back to practice, I don't want you to think about this in terms of practice. We want to keep them simple. But what's needed from what I'm about to say can inf will be there to inform your practice. Okay? So this is don't stir your mind up. So let me name one way that undistractedness can and does develop. You work with any meditation object. Well, just take your breath or whatever you're doing. If you took 
kept working and kept working with it. And if you developed your ability to concentrate far enough, and what I'm about to say is if you took it, I mean, it'd be quite far what I'm talking about, but there's gradations along the way. But if you really took it extremely far, you could get so skilled and so good and, and able to concentrate that you'd be able to focus on a single object, we call it narrowly on a single point, and you could stay focused so much on that point that you wouldn't notice anything else, and the mind would never wander. We call it one-pointedness. And in fact, it's possible to take this version of undistractedness so far that, say, you're just like, whatever you're focused on, you, you wouldn't be able to feel your body anymore. It's very, it's, it feels great when this happens. This isn't like a bad or scary thing. It's, it's very blissful and people want, when they experience it, they kind of want to go there. And you couldn't feel your body anymore. You wouldn't hear sounds. If you, I mean, we're talking about really advanced, but it's possible for people to get to these states. And what happens is you're so fixed, it's called fixed concentration, one point on a point, on a point that no other awareness can get in there and you literally lose the experience, the, the flow of changing experience stops for you. It's called fixed. So if, if the experience in a few days, I'll talk more about some of the experiences that can come with samadhi, there can be bliss and light and all this kind of stuff can happen. Don't worry about that now uh, at all, but um, um, if it's bliss, it's just bliss. <laughs> It's not even you thinking, all right, this is great. Uh, this is, you know, no. It, there's just this one experience and there's no changing experience. Fixed concentration, and I call that an exclusive samadhi because you're exclusively on one object and it excludes awareness of everything else. So we're going to call that exclusive or one-pointedness. So that, got that clear? Yeah, everybody? Pretty much? Okay. There's another way that undistractedness can uh, unfold. It's just as deep and, and every bit as strong as, the, as the, what I just mentioned, but it's a different kind of undistractedness. Rather than the, the ex flow of changing experiences stopping in your awareness, the mind itself comes to a stop all the while aware of the changing flow of experiences. Now I have to say I'm being a little sloppy with language because I said the mind and uh, I'm not, actually, I might get a laugh, but I'm not going for a laugh here when I say I don't know what the mind is. But there is an experience, I'll just call it, don't worry if you haven't experienced, where the mind itself comes to stillness but experiences are still unfolding. It's a different undistractedness. It's, it's, it's an absorption, like these can go into these jhana states. I call this, so it's a different stopping. We can stop the flow of experience or we can stop the mind. Right? Um, and in fact, last night, uh, I love the quote that Bob read from Ajahn Chah, and I'm going to get it pretty close to just to bring it back, where he says, make your mind like a still forest pool. This is what Ajahn Chah is talking about. And roughly it says something like, all kinds of rare and wonderful animals will come. You, you know, you'll, all kinds of experiences will come and go, but you will be still. You'll know the nature of all things. It's a different kind of stillness. Every bit is strong. They're both equally deep 
and they've come to an utter, utter completion, different quality. I call this second kind, rather than being ex an exclusive, I call it an inclusive because it includes everything and it doesn't exclude anything. Do so you get the difference? Also, the second kind, rather than calling it a one-pointedness, I translate the same Pali word as unification of mind. So if I say, you, I won't be using the Pali, but that's, some of you might be interested, some not. Okay. So two, already we have two kinds of undistractedness, right? I'm going to say a little more in a bit, but if, if we just gave you one instruction, stay on one object and stay with it, about half the people here would naturally open up in one of these, head in a, one of these directions and about one of us, other half roughly would head in the other if you're just on your own. These are not better or worse, but there is an important distinction to make. Let me come back and talk about insight for a bit. I'm not going to go into a lot of detail tonight. I have to, Bob and I are still working out, when, when we think about the Dharma talks, we have an idea of what we're going to do, but also we're tuning into where the retreat's at, what's going on with people. So we may shift things around, but I'm thinking that we might go into, I might talk in more depth towards the end of the week, really about insight in more, in more detail. But for right now, I'll just say that in our tradition, Insight requires changing experience to have insight, right? Because it entails perceiving directly, very profoundly and deeply the changing condition nature of all phenomena. When we really get it, not just as a concept, but as a lived experience, it's in service of not clinging, right? That's the idea. When we really get it that you know, um, listen, I could eat, and I can eat a lot of those doves, let me tell you. <laughs> it's not going to do it for me. If I really can get that, it's worse than that. You know, what's, what's eventually going to happen to all of us? I'm going to die. What's going to really serve me best? I don't have to give up the chocolates, but you know, I'm not going like, to make a big deal about it either can help inform where we put our attention, what, what's really of value to us in the deepest, highest sense. So when we're making choices, can we make choices to live from our highest place, our deepest place, in tune with our deepest aspiration? So we need to have these deep insights to start informing how we live and in service of really a deeper place of non-clinging. Insight entails perceiving what we call suffering or dukkha, the unsatisfactory nature. Um, maybe taking, you know, I'm still on the chocolate theme, maybe taking the bite of chocolate's not unsatisfactory in the moment. Maybe it's not that much suffering. Clinging to it is suffering. You know, I didn't used to have a sweet tooth at all. Then, like, somebody gave me some chocolate. I started eating them a little, and I was playing the edge. Next thing you know, I've fallen over. I've got a big sweet tooth now. <laughs> playing with fire. Now it's like, you know, right now, it's not a big deal. I can let it go, but you know, I could, I could use a piece right now. <laughs> it would hit the spot. I got a bag up there too. 
but I only take it for the, um, is it the flavonoids to help bring down your uh, blood pressure, medicinally. <laughs> so insights are important, but we need to have connection with changing experience. And to bring this, this stability, this concentration, to meet changing experience. Well, you can see that if, we're, if when we think of concentration, the, the connotation we have is heading towards fixed concentration, one-pointed, exclusive. You can see how a lot of teachers will say, if you're doing a practice called concentration, you're not doing insight meditation because you're cultivating meditative states that are going to come and go and you're going to get into this more and more about just getting into for the meditative states itself and you're losing gradually, you're on the spectrum of losing connection with changing experience and just becoming engrossed in how blissed out you are and how wonderful the, it is and you're not doing insight. So you can see if that's the your understanding of, of how you're doing concentration, then necessarily, if you're doing that kind of concentration, you have to pull out of that and back up in the concentration so you can reconnect with changing experience, still stay concentrated, and then turn your mind to an other kind of practice that we call insight. Does that make sense? And in our scene, I'm not going to go into it, uh, uh, this is the understanding. This type of concentration is the understanding. It, for those who are interested, it comes out of a, if for those who are not interested, forget this, but um, it comes out of a, of a, a manual of practice that's based on the Pali commentaries called the Vasudhimaga. And in that understanding, there's a hard distinction between these two kinds of practice, okay? And that's what's informed our whole scene. So, and this is a great way to go. None of these ways are better or worse than any other. It's all what works best for us. So we're not judging any style. We're just naming them. That gives you some context because here we're saying we're doing something different that is not talked about so much. We're not the only people talking about it. It's happening a little more but um, it's kind of not widespread in which we're not, we're not doing Vipassana versus concentration. We're bringing them together because we're aiming toward the second kind of undistractedness in which we don't lose connection with changing experiences. It enhances our connection with changing experiences. Does that make sense? And so do you, hopefully you get the basic idea at least of how why there's people can talk, you'll hear difference. So I'm doing Vipassana or I'm doing concentration. That's kind of coming from a different place. I just don't talk like that. And actually, if you look at the Pali Suttas, there is no such thing as Vipassana meditation. That comes out of the later commentaries. There's just mental cultivation in which we reach right samadhi, which ultimately is a state called jhana, which is this undistractedness, the second kind I'm talking about, inclusive in which mindfulness and insight and samadhi and tranquility, it's all yoked together as one. It's just a different system. So within the Pali language tradition, within Theravada Buddhism, there's actually these two completely different systems that share some things in common but are actually quite different. And some of the jhana wars that happen, there are, are such things, and, and dharma wars happen because, because people are judging and comparing one system from, with, from standing within the other. That's not it. That's not helping anything. We just have to understand them within the context of their own systems. We don't need to judge them. 
from what I can tell, people come to tremendous, profound depths of liberation and enlightenment, practicing in all these different ways. It's great news, so you don't have to find the one correct, best practice out there if, 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 as if it's out there waiting to find it. It's just what fits best for us. So how do we do this then? Now I'm going to focus particularly on, since I've set a context, on this integrated style. As of tonight, my plan is to talk in detail about working with the range of experiences in in samadhi that can arise in, in, in my next talk in two nights, but that can change a little bit. And talk about all and how we can steer things in different directions. But for now, I want to invite you to keep it simple. You don't have you don't have to choose or decide if you're doing concentration or insight. For tonight, at this point in the retreat, I want to invite you. So it's an experiment. Some of you have been hearing me say this word experiment a lot. It's really a, somebody today, I loved it, said it's, we're in a lab. And that was so perfect because we're in a lab. So I'm going to offer something to you and I want to ask you, invite you, encourage you to take it on, try it out, and see what happens. And this is like the clothes shopping analogy. I don't know if I didn't say that. Um, so, you know, you go shopping whatever, you're buying a shirt. So there's a whole bunch of shirts there. There's one that looks interesting. You take it off the rack, try it on, see how it fits. If you don't like it, it's not a big deal. You just stick it back on the rack and keep moving. You'll find one that fits. Let me give you something to try on. Your practice comes down to very simple. Are you doing mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness with breathing, or is it a time when it's just not about breath. We'd let it go completely. Three flavors. That's not complicated. So sometimes it may not be so clear. That's okay. We're learning to tune into and be finely attuned to our inner knowing, our inner guide, our inner teacher. As we get experience, it gets clearer and clearer. In one interview, there was one yogi, he said he, said he thought he was supposed to be with the breath and he was struggling because something else, I, I, it was some grief was coming up and it was so strong he couldn't be with the breath. He was struggling and what really was was just this rush of the grief. So I want to be really clear. We're, we're not, you're not supposed to be anything. No supposed to. There's just what's happening in the present moment. Right? It will inform what's needed. You don't have to worry about it. If we can keep an attitude of interest and curiosity. So rather than say you have a really great sit at some point and it's blissful and you're concentrated and you're just, it's just wonderful, right? And then you come back the next sit and you know your knee hurts and you can't concentrate and we can spend a lot of time trying to get back to that sit you had in the morning rather than what's actually happening right now. What's actually right now is knee pain, you can't concentrate 
and you know, and you're mad and frustrated. That's what's actually happening. You know what? Having knee pain and can't concentrate and being frustrated and angry at the same time, that sounds pretty unpleasant to me, you know? A big shift came in my own practice when I got just as interested in my suffering as I was in my bliss. Changed everything. That was a big shift. Right? So it's interesting. It's a question. How can we meet whatever's happening, meet our, the beautiful, the bliss, the pleasure? How can we meet the struggles and the suffering? Not with falling into that trap of got to get rid of or I got to get. No, there's no got to get. Just what's happening and what's skillful in the moment. I remember being on one very long retreat and I should have known better because I'd already been practicing for many, many years. And I fell in a trap. Uh, I had gotten into these states called jhana before and maybe on retreat in a certain number of weeks, maybe four weeks. Some people go faster, slower, whatever, four weeks. So I had it all planned out. This was going to be great. <laughs> four weeks, it's going to be jhana. And then I was going to, this was a year-long retreat. So I said, I'm like, this whole year, it's going to open up and all these insights and this enlightenment and, you know, and it was going to be great. So I'm about three months in, no jhana. I'm suffering big time. I know better this. I give talks on this exact subject. And what am I doing? I'm suffering. So I go to the teacher practically in tears. Oh, you know, my retreat and no jhana. And so the teacher kindly pointed out, said, well, you know, the deeper places of liberation, the more profound places in the Dharma are not about having or not having any experience. It's non-clinging around whatever it is that is happening. And I remember saying back, this was actually with Joseph, I said, uh, well, yes, Joseph, I, I, re I know, but in order for me to realize that deeply, I got to get... <laughs> I, I don't know exactly, I'm sure he smiled kindly, knowing that I needed to go off and suffer some more. <laughs> you know, and, you know, suffering is, I, I don't wish suffering, and I, I'm not asking you to seek out suffering, but you know what? Every one of us have plenty of opportunities. We have plenty of opportunities to cultivate the pleasant and the blissful and the beautiful and we want to do that and go for it. And we'll also have plenty of opportunities to cultivate the not beautiful. <laughs> Let's just call it that. The difficult, the challenging, the suffering. Not to cultivate it. They'll come find you. Right? It's going to come find you. How do we meet those when they come? So we want to keep the practice simple. Attitude of interest and curiosity Every experience, this is kind of a cliche, but it's so true. It's our teacher. Everything is our teacher. I remember sitting on one retreat, this is many years ago, and there were these blue jays that would come. In the morning time, my best sit sitting time is between breakfast and lunch. That's just my time. I mean, now it's shifted over the years, but that's what it was then. And that's the time where these blue jays would be just, rah, rah, just sitting, I mean, right out in sun. And, and so... I remember fantasizing, I, wasn't, I would never really do this, but I was fantasizing um, that literally in my mind, 
I had a shotgun and I was raising it, blasting the Blue Jays. You know? The Blue Jays weren't bothering me. I'm bothering the Blue Jays. They're just doing what Blue Jays do. Right? Ajahn Chah talks about he's had experiences where there's been sound that bothered him and just realized that's just what sound does. The sound was bothering, he was bothering the sound. Those Blue Jays were my teacher. I didn't know it at the time. That was my teacher. You know, I'm, I'm remembering a few times. I remember another time I was doing a retreat with, some of you know uh, Stephen Kamala, who I think they still do the retreats on Maui probably, but they used to do these month-longs. And um, I was doing one with them. And there's this one time they were at this one retreat center. And it's where the, on the uh, Kenai Peninsula, and it's where the helicopters would come over to the coast from the mainland, from the inland, come right out there, hover over this scenic spot for, and then head on down the coast. And they were coming about every 20 minutes. It wasn't very often. It wasn't really disturbing me. But at one point, I, I can't believe I'm telling this, but uh, I got a stick. And I was aiming up at the helicopter, and I was actually thinking, you know, if I had a shoulder-fired rocket launcher, how far would I lead the helicopter so it would just hit? I did that with a stick. Now, I wasn't really going to, you know, I wouldn't really do that. But in my mind, you know, some, it just felt good to get the stick and just, you know. And it wasn't even that much of annoyance. I just wanted my, my, uh, my uh, bliss and calm. Right? Whatever is happening as our teacher, if we can keep that, that attitude, right? And not chase after some experience and push away some other. So um, one way to think of it is let's not do anything that takes us out of our present moment experience, right? It's watching out for that I got to get or I gotta get rid of. So what do we do? When the con so I wanna just I'd like to give you my suggestion. When the mind's clear, the body's at ease, concentration's good, in other words, it, it's firing on all cylinders, if you will. Stay with that, stay with mindfulness of breathing, and just keep going. Right? Not clinging, but just in a, in a way that serves us, that's wise and skillful. So we strengthen that undistractedness, just let that go. And in fact, um, I want to now encourage you to, when this happens, and some of you may, are still in your settling in process, actually, don't, it's not just you, so uh, you have plenty of company, so don't judge yourself. You know, I remember one retreat, not retreat, I think I was in a sitting group or something, when I was brand new. I, to, I was young and naive and brand new to meditation. I came in and everybody was sitting there. They just looked like Buddhas. I remember thinking, look at them all. Everyone's blissed out but me. <laughs> so, you know, don't be so sure. You know, you're not the only one. But when it's going well, even if you're not that concentrated, but you're able to, let's real, if the energy's supportive, stay with it. And I'm going to encourage you to start sitting longer. But don't get into comp competition. If the person next to you is sitting for two hours, what, you know, it, what may serve you is after 20 minutes you need to get up and maybe you need to be walking longer. So I want to encourage you to walk in what's needed to support the practice. And it's not an uh, 
auxiliary practice. It is an important part of the practice too. But we want to start, when it works for you, um, lengthening the sits and then walking enough to get your energy back up and then come on back for longer sits. So long, I'm going to encourage you to, to experiment with that. I've already said to a couple of people today, or th maybe three or four, I'm encouraging them to do the opposite. I'm giving generic instructions here. So for some of you, I've already suggested you actually do a lot more walking than sitting. That's what will deep serve you the best. When the concentration's weak, or the hindrances are up, or you're struggling, or some experience is up, and this is what Bob was talking about, right? And we really need, it's, whatever's happening is not staying in the background, and it's not so easy, even with some effort, to do mindfulness of breathing. We can still bring the breath right in, we just shift to mindfulness with breathing. But it's an interesting question. How do I breathe with or into this knee pain? So you might have to experiment. What does that mean? Some people kind of breathe into the grief or the ache. Not to make it do anything, but as an aid. Some people just have an awareness of they really are turning to the knee pain, but they allow the awareness of the breath to come in too. Experiment with it. Mindfulness of breathing. Keep the continuity mindfulness with breathing, so we're opening to other experiences. And then... Notice that the language that we've been using is not, you've got to stay with the breath and only breath. No, we're saying strong preference for the breath. That gives us some room knowing that there's times when you just, you just really, it, it does support when the breath, the breath is let go of and it's just whatever else. So we're going to have some times for that too. When? Well, you have to figure it out. Use your best judgment. Don't stress over it. See what happens, okay? In this way, you're not deciding, am I doing concentration, am I doing insight? Sometimes on its own, you're leaning more on the concentration side. That's, you know, the sits are longer, you know, the, the mind's clear, the concentration's good, so we're kind of leaning more, emphasizing that. And other times, just in the natural flow, it just flows back the other way and it feels like we're more on the insight side and we're dealing with our suffering and letting go. And, and so, you know, we just go back and forth, but it's a seamless flow, letting our experience be our teacher and inform what's needed. And it's all part of one practice. So I'm a bit over, but there's a little bit more I'd just like to say to, um, to finish up. How is it that we learn about anything? It's through experience, right? That's how we really come to know something well. We have experience. Aren't we all here to really come to understand our suffering well? But none of us want to suffer, right? We can shift our relationship with the difficulties and see that, again, on this theme of it being our teacher, it's not, you know, when it feels like it's falling apart, that's a judgment. It's not falling apart. 
It's just what's happening right now. You know, if all you can do is sit in the woods on a log and sob, I mean, that is suffering, and I'm not making light of it at all. I mean, I think that's real and important. But it's not falling apart. It's what's happening. And so then we just need to, all we need to know is what's needed now. Do I need to go talk to somebody else? Or do I need to tend to some love and, with some love or compassion? Can I work with the breath now or not? It didn't fall apart. Through all of this, how can we uh, deepen our connection with the breath? So we're not grasping after the breath, but how we um, give ourselves more fully to the breath. This is a different flavor when we talk about it like this. It's like the beloved, if you will. Embracing the breath, letting go into the breath, immersing in the breath, right? getting close with the breath. And when that happens in those times, they're really times of grace. Uh, I think of it, I don't know literally, but it feels that way when that happens. It feels good and there's something that feels right about it. And the mind's clear. And again, it's the, the pleasantness of the experience, they come and go. But it can be very nurturing and healing and nourishing. And it gives us a break. And so we don't want to deny or push it away. We want to use that because it's part of the of the big of the wide range of uh, skillful means. Ultimately, I've already said it's not about the breath. The breath's just a vehicle among many vehicles. We can get to a place where the stream of samadhi becomes alive in our practice and in our life. And the stream of dharma wakes up in, in the practice in our life. And then it's beyond breath and everything. Any, any of these other things. And the separations between insight and concentration dissolve. The separations between daily life and retreat practice break down and dissolve too. Right? So this is this path we're on, where we're heading for. So I just want to end with one uh, story uh, that I hope you'll take to heart. It's an image that Ajahn Chah uses in relationship to Dharma practice. And he uses the image of a chili bush. And he says, if you're growing a chili bush, your job is to prepare the soil, plant the seed, water it, protect it from insects. That's it. That's how fast it grows. That's none of your business. It's not up to you, right? Can you make it grow? No. You've done your part, right? When we're practicing here, we want to be clear on what our part is. Our part is to show up the best you can. And listen, I want to just tell you real clearly, for all of those, I know some of your minds are saying, you know, I'm not doing the best I, I could be. Listen, you are doing the best you can. <laughs> If you could do better, you would. If you think, oh, I'm too lazy, you know what, this is, the this is what it looks like when you're doing your best. And it's good. You show up the best you can, as literally every single person here is. That's literally true. 
and you do your part, which you sit and you walk and you tend to your inner experience and outer experience the best you can, discerning when mostly mindfulness of breathing, mindfulness with breathing, letting all that go, the best you can. And then how it unfolds, it's, it's, it's not up to you. It's up to the Dharma. If we can have that attitude, then what would it be like a teacher once asked me, it was actually on that same long retreat when I was struggling, in the same interview, I think. Uh, Joseph said, well, what would happen if you came here and at the end of the, the retreat, nothing happened and, and you went home knowing you had devoted yourself the best you could. I think I just kind of staggered out of the room just like... Uh, <laughs> It was just unthinkable or something. <laughs> but you know what? When we really get that, that's in service of a deep, profound non-clinging and letting go right there. And so we're engaged in the process and we take delight in the process. We have curiosity. We're interested. What, what is life going to look like for you now that you've shifted and you, your struggles really are gone because it's all your teacher? Right? It's changed. Your problems are solved. Right? Just remember that. And what, it doesn't matter what happens from now on. <laughs> I mean, I'm being a little humorous because, listen, the difficulties come and of course they matter. So I'm not being dismissive. I'm just, so I want to say that too. Ajahn Chah says, our problem is we want to plant the seed, have it grow, flower, and produce chilies in one day. And that you can't go stretching on the leaves demanding that they grow. <laughs> so if we can bring that attitude, it will, it will do two things. First of all, it will prevent so much suffering along this path that's intended to come to an end of suffering and how much we create suffering on the path. And the second thing is, and this is, I'll leave you with this, is the deeper states of samadhi are not states of doing or gaining. They're states of non-clinging and letting go. So there's some doing that comes in. I'm getting a little ahead of the instructions. But when the momentum of the samadhi takes over, we let go into it and let it take over itself and it does us. So when we let go of our struggles... And, and, and learn. And so this is experience. It's an art. What's just the right touch of, that we bring to it? And sometimes that's a lot, and sometimes it's a little. So we learn the right touch. We're in the sweet spot. We're in the zone that can open. So we suffer less, and we actually uh, get more. So let's uh, just, um, we'll just sit quietly for a few moments together. So I invite you take, to take just a few moments and 
you know, as much as you can with a sense of ease. Let, every, let that whole talk just go out of your mind, you know, not force it out, but uh, just let it go if you can. Some of it will reverberate around maybe things you liked or didn't like or whatever, but see if you can let go around it. Just come right back into your present moment experience if you weren't already. And notice not only what's happening in the body, states of the heart and the mind, but I invite you to take a few moments to notice how are you relating or being with what's happening in your experience. And see if you can bring a sense of allowing or letting be. And then bring the breath in as appropriate. And if you find a place for which you're struggling and you're not able to let go or allow or let be, then let that place of struggle be. It's a place of tremendous, that allowing ourselves to be really is a place of tremendous uh, love, metta, uh, compassion for ourselves. So thank you all very much for your kind attention and for listening and especially uh, for uh, your practice this evening. So we're gonna stay on the normal schedule, but I talked about 15 minutes over, so actually there's a little less than half an hour for the sitting period, so please use the evening as well, in whatever way serves you the best. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.